Hello and welcome to Holmes Borden and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. Let's talk about the Ripper murders and the Moriarty brothers and the connection between this family and those crimes. We'll never know how many people, at least we'll never know for certain, how many people that Jack the Ripper killed between 1888 and 1891. I think almost every student of the crimes, at least every serious student, would agree that there were at least three Ripper murders. A number of experts think there were five. And there are some who say that he may have been responsible for as many as nine. But I want to talk about the three that seem to be the ones that everybody agrees on. Three women, poor, prostitutes, all of them with alcohol issues, were murdered in the Whitechapel District in London between September 8 and November 9, 1888. Their names were Annie Chapman, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. And I don't really want to spend a lot of time talking about the murders themselves because they are savage and appalling, almost beyond belief. They make the Borden murders look tame. And I I hesitate to say that because it sounds so flippant, but these murders were disgusting, mind-boggling, uncivilized, barbaric. It's hard to get your head around what happened to these poor victims. In all three cases, the victims' throats were completely severed, cut from ear to ear all the way up to the spine. In every case, the killer cut open the abdomen and removed the intestines. All three victims had suffered genital mutilation, and the ripper had removed part or all of the uterus in all three cases. In the second murder, that of Catherine Eddowes, the killer also removes the left kidney and carries it away. It's not found at the scene. He severs the nose, he cuts triangular shapes into both cheeks, and he makes vertical incisions in the eyelids. Then he slices off part of her right ear. And then finally, with Mary Kelly, her face was hacked beyond recognition. Her abdomen was opened and it was emptied of its organs, and the killer just left them in two piles, maybe three. There was a pile down near her feet. There was one, I think, on the table next to the bed. She was actually killed in her room. The other two were killed, I believe, in the street, sort of dark alleys or courtyards. Finally, as for Mary Kelly, her heart had been removed, and that was also carried away, I guess, as a souvenir. So I'm not going to say anything more about these murders. I think that's all I need to say. They're so graphic and disgusting that in some ways I wonder why people are still fascinated by them. They're so appalling and disgusting. It's hard for me to understand why people would want to read about these cases in detail. Maybe people could say that about the Borden murders. At any rate, let's talk about Sherlock. I've told you he was convinced that Professor Moriarty was behind these murders, that this had to do with controlling the prostitution industry in London, the business, bringing it under the control of his criminal organization. And of course, he didn't commit these murders himself with his own hand. He had somebody do it for him. And Holmes had a theory that it was the youngest Moriarty brother, Jabez or Jabez, who was assigned to handle the operation. Now, the professor was aware through his informants in the police and his informants in the British government that Holmes was on his trail and had been for a while. And he anticipated correctly that Holmes was going to get involved in the investigation because these were horrific crimes. 
So as he's planning these crimes, he's planning this terror campaign, he knows that Holmes will try to link him to these killings and try to bring him to justice. So even though he felt he was protected, that he had this layer of protection in the form of bribed officials and bribed police officers, he still had some concerns. He knew that Holmes had a lot of energy, was very intelligent, and was determined to bring him to justice. He thought that Holmes would see right through the popular view that there was a madman on the loose. He was pretty confident that Holmes would recognize that these murders were part of a calculated plan to bring the entire world of prostitution under the control of the Moriarty Syndicate. He's not overly worried that Holmes is going to be able to tie him to the crimes, but he doesn't want to take any chances. He wants to make this as hard for Sherlock as possible. So after he has told his brother what he wants, he leaves England in late July for an extended vacation. And he goes to Scandinavia, then he goes to Russia and on to the French Riviera. And he's planning to cruise in the Mediterranean on a yacht for another month or two and return to England in November or December. This at the time seemed to be a prudent move, but I also believe that Moriarty came to regret it. And because he wasn't there in England to manage the situation, things spun out of control pretty quickly. We don't know for sure whether this was because Professor Moriarty had failed to understand the depth of his younger brother's depravity. Maybe he wasn't clear enough about exactly what he wanted the younger brother to do. Or maybe he didn't care, wasn't worried about it, was perfectly happy to have this type of terror campaign and had underestimated the impact that it would have on the public. Certainly, to some degree, he thought the public isn't really going to care. Why would they care about a bunch of penniless, middle-aged, alcoholic prostitutes? He thought this would just have a huge impact or a major impact in the world of prostitution, and beyond that, it wouldn't make much of a stir. After the first murder, Holmes gets approached by the government, by his brother, and he's asked to participate in the investigation. But he says, I want to do it my way. I want to be active. I want to be in the field. I want to do it undercover. I don't want to be sitting in an office giving orders or supervising the investigation. I want to be out there. Mycroft says no. He says, this is reckless. He says, Sherlock, you know the Moriarty brothers are going to learn sooner or later through the use of informants and corrupt police officers that you're involved. And once they learn this, you're going to be a target. They're going to try to kill you. Now, we know that Holmes was willing to take enormous risks with his life over the course of his career, and he did this on a number of occasions. So when Mycroft said, no, you can't play an active role, Sherlock said, fine, I'm not going to get involved, and I won't change my mind until you let me do it my way. If it had just been Mycroft's decision, at that point, he almost certainly would have said, no, Sherlock, I'm not going to let you do it. Sorry. I wish we could work this out, but I'm not going to risk your life. But because there was so much pressure on the police and on the British government, and there was such a hue and cry about catching the Ripper, that spilled over onto Mycroft. He was getting direct pressure from everybody in the government that knew about his connection with Sherlock, and so that even his patron, Lord Rosebery, wasn't able to protect him. And he began to think that this was going to affect his career in the government. He didn't feel like he had a lot of choice, so he gives in, and he tells Holmes, go ahead, do it your way. 
Now, Holmes's theory was that the Moriarty gang was using different underlings, unimportant, petty criminals, to go out and try and lure women to a prearranged location. So under Holmes's theory, Jabez would be at some courtyard or in some alley that was a prearranged rendezvous and that various underlings would be sent out to bring the women back and that when they got to the designated area, Jabez would kill them and do his thing while the the underling who had gotten the, the woman there would act as a lookout. One of the reasons that Holmes believed this was he didn't think that the Moriarty's would risk having Jabez caught or identified. This would minimize the risk of Jabez being caught. And in addition, if they used three or four or a half dozen different underlings who were different ages, dressed differently, of different sizes, that it would be harder to come up with a single sketch or profile They wouldn't be able to fasten on to one particular person and be looking for one particular individual, that they'd be getting different descriptions from different witnesses. And that's, in fact, what happened. Now, Watson says in his papers that during this time, once he gets on board and once he's given permission to operate undercover, Watson says he's working 16 to 18 hours a day and he's patrolling the Whitechapel neighborhood in disguise. He has a couple of rooms, what Watson calls bolt holes, in the area so that he can go somewhere nearby and change his disguise when needed, get a little bit of sleep, and then get back out to work. And this saves him having to travel back and forth to Baker Street. Now, of course, we know that the Ripper was never caught in the act. And afterwards, when he was asked why he was unable to stop the murders, Sherlock said it was bad luck, And he said, also, the corrupt detectives in the force were giving the Moriarty organization about Sherlock's plans, about where he would be, what nights he would be working, what parts of Whitechapel that he would probably be patrolling. And also, I think, even though Sherlock was reluctant to admit this, Jabez Moriarty wasn't just vicious and cruel. He was also cunning, and he was capable of planning his attacks carefully to minimize the chance of getting caught. So it looks like, to some extent, Sherlock underestimated this particular brother and his level of intelligence. It's also important to know that even though Mycroft had been forced to give in on the issue of letting Sherlock become directly involved, he had insisted that at all times at least one plainclothes officer stay within either sight or hearing of his brother at all times. So there was always a member of either Scotland Yard or the constabulary who was assigned to shadow Holmes and to know where he was and where he was going. Now, one night around, I think it was October 5th, Sherlock is lured into a trap and he's disguised as a car man, but the Moriarty gang knows who he is. They know what he's going to be wearing for a disguise. They've identified him. They lure him into a courtyard and they attack him. Two assassins go at him. He's able to fight off one of them, but the second approaches him from behind and stabs him twice in the back. Fortunately, he was able to raise a hue and cry, and the officer who was tailing him arrives within seconds and probably saves his life. And even though Sherlock's life was probably not in danger because of the quick intervention, he was laid up for a couple of months, maybe as long as three months. So this was the end of his undercover career, at least as far as the Ripper case goes. And that turned out to be a good thing, not only because it prevented further attacks, but it was during this convalescence that he and Mycroft were able to spend a fair amount of time together. 
and it gave them the opportunity to talk about different ways of approaching the Moriarty organization. So it was during this time when Holmes was forced to recover and was unable to go out and investigate anything actively. That included his own cases, his private practice. They come up with this novel approach. And this is the same tactic, actually, that prosecutors used 40 years later against Al Capone. They realized that Moriarty is vulnerable financially. If they can only find the source of his money, track it, get to the bank accounts, cut them off. So they come up with a detailed plan and they go to the home office, which is the equivalent of it's what we would have for a U.S. attorney general's office or a Department of Justice. It's more than that, but part of the home office plays that role. And then they also went to the chancellor of the exchequer who is in charge of tax collection and so on. And they get their permission to go in and investigate bank records and they get access to these records and they move ahead on a number of fronts. And they are successful, as I've already explained, in cutting off the sources of Moriarty's finances. And that's a major reason that his operation is brought to a halt and largely broken up. Now, Watson has gotten married. He gets married in 1887. And in order to support his wife and maintain a separate home, he has to open up a private practice because he doesn't have money of his own. So he borrows money in order to buy an existing practice from a doctor who's been sick and his practice has kind of been declining and Watson steps in, buys it and takes over and tries to build it back up. But because he borrows money, he has a lot of pressure hanging over him. It's hard to start up a medical practice, especially in those days it would have been. Because remember, this is in the days before they had health insurance, before they had national health plans like they do in Europe at this time. There was no equivalent to Medicare or Medicaid. So doctors had to get paid directly by the patients. That meant chasing after them, trying to collect from them, negotiating with them. That was on top of the doctoring itself. So it was a whole different world. Doctors had a much different existence in those days. That was another reason that he really didn't want to do this. Building up a practice is time-consuming. The hours can be unpredictable. And as a result of all this, he finds it difficult to maintain regular contact with Sherlock. At the same time, he's always ready to drop whatever he's doing and head off on the latest investigation. So during this recovery period, when Holmes was starting to feel better, he becomes, he, Holmes, becomes increasingly restless and he's impatient. He wants to get back to work. So he's firing off telegrams to Mycroft and other people involved in the Ripper investigation. He's telling them what to do and he's asking for meetings all the time. And so about a month or six weeks after the attack, say mid-November, Holmes asks Watson to come over and meet with him and Mycroft at Baker Street. They want him to review the autopsy records of the three victims that we've been talking about in this episode. During that meeting, the topic of the Moriarty brothers comes up. And even though Sherlock had spoken about the professor before to Watson, this may have been the first time that he really talked about the other two brothers. And of course, Watson makes sure to write up notes of this meeting as soon as he gets back. I've included a couple of quotes. The following one pertains to the three brothers and in particular to the middle brother, whose name was Adam. He's the one that Sherlock identifies as a station master in a provincial town located in Western England. Now, the station manager was basically the person who made sure that that station ran efficiently. He hired people that worked for him, the people that maintained the tracks, that kept the station clean, that sold the tickets, that booked the trips, that worked as porters, that sort of thing. He paid attention to the schedule. He was sort of a middle management figure in the in the railroad. And station masters often had a house right there attached to the station or near the station. 
One of the things that was so frustrating to Sherlock about the Moriarty's was that the two older brothers were so successful with their public relations campaigns. They weren't modern public relations campaigns, but they were ahead of their time. And so they present themselves as a respectable professor and a station master. These are, you know, Victorian gentlemen. They're successful. They're mild-mannered. That was the public opinion to the extent that they even registered. They weren't like high-profile people in the public eye. But Sherlock is really frustrated with this, and he's always trying to convince people that they're not who they seem to be. Before I read you this quote about the Moriarty brothers, I just had to say that you might remember from reading some of the official records, Watson talks about how big, how tall, how fat, how imposing Mycroft is. He describes Mycroft's hands as being like the flippers of a seal. So he, in the notes here, he talks about the hands again, only this time he refers to them as baker's paddles. It's a funny image, but here's the quote that Sherlock is attributed to Sherlock. He's talking about the three Moriarty brothers. He says, quote, These three beauties, viewed with scientific detachment, may fairly be described as the most depraved specimens I have ever encountered. Their evil tendencies were kindled at an early age by the lust for gold and a desire for supreme power. Their object is to bend others to their will by all means available and to attain such ends they stick at nothing. He goes on to say, You are both aware of my views on the professor, whom I have often described as a human spider, perched at the center of an enormous criminal web. The second brother, who goes by Adam, has constructed a web of his own, but it is distinguished from that of his brother. It is a web forged of steel and iron, stretching in all directions across the length and breadth of this kingdom, and arguably beyond. We may, under common parlance, refer to this as a railway system, but make no mistake, it is a highly practical and efficient web. At first glance, this brother appears to be but a simple country station master, an official of no import, irrelevant, relegated to the operation of a provincial branch line. But beneath that mask of humility lies a vile and brutal villain. He pulls the levers and presses the buttons of the great Moriarty criminal machine. He oils the works, replaces the belts, and tightens the bolts. This is a web of his construction and his design. He is no simple country station master. He is the manager of all that is evil in that criminal empire. At his word, commerce is halted, trains derailed, express engines deployed, and all the dark forces of that great organization are mobilized and marshaled at a moment's notice. So, in addition to getting Watson's opinions about the autopsy report, Sherlock also wants to use Watson to back up his theory that the youngest brother is the one who's actually committing the Ripper murders. He has told Mycroft that the youngest brother was trained as a doctor in Germany. Having Watson there during this meeting, present at the Baker Street flat, Holmes turns to him and says, don't you agree, Watson, that anybody who is capable of cutting out a kidney, doing it cleanly and removing it and walking off with it in the dark without proper lighting in the space of just a few minutes, isn't that almost certainly somebody with a medical degree? And Watson says, I would say the chances are pretty high, although, as Mycroft points out, 
because Mycroft weighs in on this. And Mycroft says, well, isn't it possible that it was somebody who was trained as an undertaker? Could it have been an orderly, someone that just observed operations, not somebody who was actually trained as a doctor? And Watson said, that's possible. And then Mycroft says, isn't it possible it could have been a butcher, someone who, who dismembers pig carcasses? Those of you who are old enough to have taken biology in the 1970s or 80s, When I took it in high school, we actually did dissect of fetal pigs that were stored in formaldehyde. My guess is that pigs have roughly similar anatomies to ours. So in theory, it could have been a butcher who was accustomed to cutting open carcasses and removing things like kidneys and livers and so on. At any rate, Sherlock and Mycroft start to argue during this meeting Sherlock keeps insisting that it's Jabez, that Jabez is a doctor, and Mycroft keeps saying, you don't have the proof. I don't want to go off on this wild goose chase. Sherlock, you have a tendency to go off on flights of fancy, essentially. And he says, and here's another quote, I have a remembrance, Sherlock, that you cultivated as a young child a fictitious playmate. Was not his name Jabez? Perhaps the two of you have renewed your acquaintance. In other words, you had an imaginary friend when you were little. I don't think he was named Jabez, by the way. This is just a dig. But maybe this is your imaginary friend who's sort of reappeared. And that really pisses Sherlock off. They get in a pretty heated argument, or as Watson would say, they had high words with each other, which involved rather vigorous adjectives. And Watson has to basically break it up. He says, if you don't stop, I'm going to leave. And then he says, on top of that, You're just playing into the killer's hand. This is what the killer wants. He wants the two of you to fight. You're the only two who are going to solve this. So stop it. Put your pride off to the side and put your heads together and get this figured out. One thing that I should mention now before I forget is that because of the stabbings and the pain that Sherlock experienced in his recovery, he becomes addicted to morphine. And he starts using it heavily. And that's evident pretty early on. And Mycroft expresses concern about it almost from the start. It's the morphine more than any other drug, I would say more than the cocaine, that leads to his physical and emotional breakdown in 1891. And he ends up struggling with the morphine basically for the rest of his life. And in this podcast, we'll see how it leads to all kinds of problems. And another thing I wanted to mention is that during their disagreement where Sherlock says, I know the Moriarty's are behind this. I know that Jabez is a doctor. I think Jabez is the one committing the murders. And Mycroft says, how do you know it? Sherlock says, I've committed burglaries. I've burglarized the professor's home. I've burglarized offices that are connected to the Moriarty crime syndicate. And at that point, Mycroft gets angry and says to Sherlock, And I'm quoting, you have always been precipitate in your actions, but of late, I note that you have adopted other disturbing, and I would even venture to say shocking habits. And while he's saying this, Watson notes that Mycroft looks pointedly at the bottle of morphine and the syringe that are lying next to his brother on a table within his reach. Mycroft goes on to say, do what you will but I shall never place my career or reputation in the path of disgrace. I will not be party to your crimes. I had hoped to get to this trip that Sherlock and Watson made to Western England, to Shropshire. We'll get to that. We'll definitely get to that in in the next episode. And then pretty soon, we're going to be in America. The plot thickens, the pace picks up, and it is amazing stuff. So I hope you join me next time. And until then... Take care.